Kevin Hart here. This basketball season, Chase Freedom Unlimited is helping me cash back on everything, even the sound system that auto-tunes the game. Curry from way downtown. Defense. Will the owner of a red sedan please visit guest services? Bet you've never heard cash back and sound like that. Cash back like a pro with Chase Freedom Unlimited. Chase, make more of what's yours. Restrictions and limitations apply. Cards are issued by JPMorgan Chase Bank and a member FDIC. This is John Middlecoff from 3 and Out with John Middlecoff. Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. No! Oh my God! How could he do that? What? Charles Darwin. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brabber and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we are on the eve of the NBA play-in tournament, the beginning of the postseason. I think we are in for a bunch of fun with this. Some really interesting games ahead of us. And so today, we're just going to break down each and every one of those, talking about a few keys to the game in each of the four first-round play-in matchups, and then we'll give our picks for who we see getting out of the full thing, ultimately as well, the two teams from each conference that will then be in that best-of-seven traditional playoff format. And so we're going to do all that today. Should be a lot of fun. And Logan, let's start with what I think is the more interesting matchup out east, and that is the 7-8 between the Celtics and the Wizards, a couple teams that are trending in opposite directions, Certainly teams that we had different expectations for coming into the season. But what's your first key to this one? My first key to this game uh, is for the Boston Celtics, and it's really simple. That's run Davis Bertans off the line every opportunity you're given. Um, And we've seen this uh, in previous uh, games between these two teams. Bertans has kept the Wizards in contention. Uh, Obviously, that really close one that came down to the wire, uh, 110-111, where Tatum hit the game winner. Uh, he knocks down five threes to keep it close in their first meeting uh, in the loss earlier in the year. He knocks down four three-pointers, and in their sole win, he knocked down two. So he may not have been the driving force behind the win in the second game, but you know he keeps them in these ball games, and he can still swing a one game by going lights out from behind the arc. He's a really good shooter off the catch. He's a really good moving jump shooter. You see him all the time uh, catching ba- uh, catching passes on the hash at the top of the key, slightly moving to his right, knocking down shots. He's just a He's a lights-out shooter, and 
his shooting has been imperative for wins for the Wizards this season. There's a drastic difference in his numbers and wins versus losses. He's knocking down uh, 13 points per game on 43-42 shooting splits with three and a half uh, three-pointers made in wins this season. In losses, he goes down to 10 points per game on 37-36 shooting splits with only two and a half three-pointers made uh, this season. He's always a threat. Uh, he's really volatile to go off in games. He's got 19 games with four or more three-pointers made. The Wizards are 12-7 and seven in those games. And when he makes five or more, they're 6-3 and three in those games. So I, I think it's really simple. And, of course, with how big a deal it was in these uh, previous matchups earlier this season, Ron Berton's off the line. He is this team's best three-point shooter. Uh, if they do that, you're taking away uh, the most valuable shot in basketball for a team's best shooter. And I think... Uh, He's a really big threat to swing this game uh, if the Celtics leave him open all night. No, you're right. This is going to be a pivotal matchup here because the Wizards, as dominant as their top two guys can be, are conceivably going to need a third guy to step up if they want to win this game and really if they want to try to make any noise come playoffs, which I don't think they're a good enough all-around team to do. But Bertans is 100% the guy you look at. And Rihachimura has his nights, no doubt, but because of the quickness and deadliness with which Bertans can score because of his height and the ability to hit those threes in tight windows on the move, he's the guy you point to. And you were talking about some of the win-loss splits when he has those big nights. When he hits six threes on the year, they're 4-0. And so if he gets that number, that is the real true difference maker. And he hasn't gotten there as much as you maybe would have expected, hasn't had really the volume of opportunity he did last year but can always find those shots and really doesn't need space to get off that look. And so I think you're right. Get up in his grill because once he's inside the arc, he's not shooting the ball. He becomes basically ineffective. And that's the thing with Bertans. It's take away that one shot and he doesn't really have anything, but it's incredibly difficult to take away that one shot. And it may be that he gets those looks and he just doesn't knock them down, but it also may be that he gets seven good looks at threes and makes six of them or gets 10 good looks at threes and makes six of them. And then you're talking about a game that has been flipped on its head. And I think that absolutely he is the third most frightening weapon on this Wizards team that is obviously not particularly deep, doesn't have incredible offensive talent all around. He is the one guy though who on his best night is absolutely terrifying. I'll start with the key for the Wizards that unlike Bertans and how it can be exciting, is more about damage control. And that's about Russell Westbrook staying within himself in this one. Because obviously, Russ has been on a really impressive tear as of late. Particularly, I would say, with the playmaking volume. Collapsing defenses, kicking out to dudes. I think he had the seven-game streak with 15-plus assists every night. That's ridiculous all-time stuff. And it's a testament to the value he can have when, again, he's getting downhill and he's making good enough decisions there. But Russ also has a tendency in big spots to think, okay... I don't just have that value. I am also the best jump shooter on this team, and I should be shooting 25, 30 times a game, and that is what he has done time and again in playoff situations, in elimination game situations, and it has killed his team. He's played in 14 elimination games in his career. He's lost 11 of them, and in those 11 losses, he has shot 36.5% from the field and has shot 25.3 times per game. You have a guy shooting on that volume that poorly, you are not going to win and that's why they've lost all those games. And in two of their three wins in elimination games, he actually stayed much more under control. And I think shot 16 and 20 times and was more efficient. In his last four elimination games, Logan, he's taken 43 threes. And there were a couple of just ridiculous games in OKC where he's living behind the line. He's taking like 17, 19 threes. And that is how he kills his team. And we've seen it too many times. And especially now when Beal says he's not 100%, still coming off that hamstring injury, 
I am a little bit worried that Russ, who is certainly feeling himself, might take that as his cue to go berserk in that way, and that's not how he's most effective. I don't think you can say he shouldn't have the ball in his hands for a lot of the game because he probably should. I mean, he is far and away their second best player, and he does have that value collapsing defenses. But his greatest weapon at this point is not his scoring. It's the threat of his scoring coming downhill and then what he can do to dissect defenses once he gets in those positions. And when he starts leaning on the jump shot, when he starts thinking, okay, I'm going to force shots, that is when you get ugly Russell Westbrook. And that's a scary Russell Westbrook for your own team's sake. And I'm a little worried we might see that guy come out here. I'm sorry. I want to clarify. Carson, you said in elimination games, he's shooting 36% from the field. 36% on over 25 shots a game. These are in elimination game losses, 11 of them. That's just absolutely atrocious. And yeah. I think you I think you highlighted this perfectly, Carson. This is my second key to the game, and it's limiting Westbrook's opportunities. Like you said, I don't want to completely X him out of the offense because it is bad for the Wizards. They're 3-12 and 12 when he has 9 or less assists, and they're 27-23 and 23 when he has 10 or more assists. They need him to be a playmaking engine and, like you said, collapse defenses to win this game. But... You just want to limit those bad shots. You throw out some of the elimination game numbers from this very season. The Wizards are 21-18 and 18 when Westbrook attempts four or less three-pointers, and they're 9-17 and 17 when he attempts five or more. There's a clear correlation in Westbrook taking bad shots and the Wizards losing basketball games. I think you summed it up perfectly. Westbrook is a double-edged sword. He can go out and single-handedly win you a game, and he can go out there and single-handedly lose you one. And like you said, he scares the hell out of me in a one game scenario it for both for both sides of this game yeah and this may not technically be an elimination game but it's certainly going to feel like one and it's the closest thing there is you lose this game and now you're in an elimination game and it's such a unique format that everybody is going to be playing with that do or die feeling on their shoulders and Again, that's when Russ can become a little too confident and can start hurting his own team sometimes. So that'll be fascinating to watch. And it'll be interesting to see how much Beal can insert himself and say, okay, I am the best player on this team. I am the alpha. And still do that in a way where he's getting his touches within the flow of the offense. It's going to be fascinating there because they have found a way to negotiate their egos and to coexist for this second half of the season. But this is going to be a test of that in the biggest spot. All right, so I will give my second key here, which is for the Celtics. And it is just that they need so desperately for a second guy to really show up offensively. And first of all, Tatum has to be there. And that is not an absolute given. Because as phenomenally talented as he is, for all the reasons I touched on in the video I made about him, sometimes the game is just too hard for him. And it's too many of the tough mid-range turnarounds. And he doesn't get downhill consistently enough. And so you can have those nights where you shoot 3 of 15. You score less than 10 points. He's had three single-digit scoring games this year, which is just really above average for a guy who is scoring more than 26 points per game, above average in that most people will have one or zero, above average in a bad way. And just consistently in wins, he's way more efficient. Shoots 48% from the field, 43% from deep, scores 27.5 points per game. In losses, it's 25 points per game. It's 43% from the field. It's 33% from three. This team just goes with him. He is so far and away their best offensive player, especially now that Jalen's out. He is their most valuable scorer by far, but he's also their most valuable playmaker out of the pick and roll at this point. And so if he's not hitting those tough mid-rangers, he has to adjust. He has to lean on that playmaking more. He has to try to get downhill. He can't just let this team die and say, okay, everybody else go win us this game because they won't. And I'm assuming that won't happen. I'm thinking he shoots 25 times whether he's knocking them down or not. And so that'll be interesting to watch. But 
Who else is there? Because you need a second guy. The Wizards are going to have two guys, and the Celtics are a team that is, compared to last year, lacking the kind of offensive firepower they once had. But there are a couple guys who I think could step up. It could be Kemba. It could be Evan Fournier. Kemba, when he's been out there lately, has actually really turned up the scoring. Over his last seven, he's averaging 28 points per game on 54% from the field. I think Fournier has looked a lot better, and I was expecting this to happen. I've been waiting on this moment because Fournier is way too good for him to be playing as he was in his first few games in Boston, and he's such a good fit here. And now over his last seven, he's putting up 20 points per game on 55% shooting, and those guys are both so valuable because they can kill you just with the shot from beyond the arc. Quick-hitting stuff. They don't need the ball a ton. Fournier less so than Kemba, but they both can handle, of course, and create for themselves and others as well. But if they both go quiet, you are probably dead in the water because the Celtics have been trimmed down to three reliable guys offensively, and those are your three. It's Tatum, it's Fournier, and Kemba. Unless you want to count Time Lord, he's a reliable lob threat, but he's also reliable to score less than 15 points. Like, he's not going to have an explosion. And so, it has to be one of these two guys. If they don't have it, Tatum would just have to go berserk. Like, he'd have to score 40-something because they just don't have enough guys in those role player spots who I can point to and say, okay, well, at least that guy could get you 12 or 15. He could help you win this game. I don't think they have that. I think it has to be these three, and I think that two of the three of them have to have really good games, and if they do that, I think they're in a good spot. So that's my second key. What's your third? Uh, mine focuses on the defensive end for the Celtics, and like you said earlier, Carson, uh, it has not been a good stretch on either end for Boston. Uh, they're 22nd in defensive rating over the last 10, and I think – um, outside of uh, running Bertans off the line, which I think is the most important, they've got to protect the other side, and that's the paint. Uh, the Wizards score the fifth most points in the paint per game in the NBA this season, and you've got a lot of really good role guys on this roster. Robin Lopez, Daniel Gafford, Roy Hachimura, and Westbrook's good at dotting them up. He's also a force on the interior himself, but uh, on a bigger issue, like we have seen games uh, during this recent stretch where the Celtics have failed to defend on the interior well. Robert Williams, Time Lord, has struggled. Bam Adebayo and, excuse me, uh, Dwayne Dedman. I'm spacing on his name. They uh, bullied him on the interior the other night. We see Kevin Love and Jared Allen get inside. Uh, they have struggled on the interior all season long. Williams has certainly stepped up his play, but. The Wizards are really good at playing bully ball on the interior. Robin Lopez maybe will get six shots a night, but he's really good at converting them. He's a big body down low. He is efficient with his touches in there. The Wizards are going to have to try to force the ball inside and create easy looks. I think that that's going to be obviously a prime focus of theirs, and it is going to be a there's going to be a tall task for Robert Williams to protect the paint all game long when. The Wizards' offense is so good at creating those reliable opportunities inside. I think both keys, I think like you said, it is going to be a struggle all night offensively because Jason Tatum is going to have an enormous load, but it is going to be just as big a struggle on the defensive end trying to stop shooters like Bradley Beal and Davis Bertans and trying to stop guys who are really strong on the inside in Westbrook, Lopez, and Hachimura all game long. Uh, I don't know, man. Initially, I was not expecting this to be as much of a challenge for Boston. This is going to be a scrappy game. 100%. And my third key for the Celtics primarily focuses on the defensive end as well. I will point out, no mention of Alex Len for you. I know that you hate Alex Len. But he's a perfectly fine role, man. He's a big, strong guy. He's aggressive in there. And he does a pretty good job when he gets fed those easy ones by Russ. But my third key for the Celtics is really just what you get from Marcus Smart. And 
Smart only played against the Wizards once this year. And really, I'm focused on the defensive end with him. Offensively, there's some variability as well because if he's knocking down his shots, he can be really good for you. If he takes a lot of shots and doesn't knock them down, which happens a lot, then he can be a real minus. And there's always the double-edged sword there as well. But defensively, you're not going to get very much bad and you're going to get a whole lot of good. And sometimes you're going to get game-changing impact. And against a team that is so driven by these two stars in the backcourt, Russell Westbrook and Bradley Beal, you need a guy who can step up and make them uncomfortable. So I went back and watched that game because I was interested in who is he primarily going to match up against. And obviously every game is different. We're way further in the season than we were then. And the Celtics have different personnel available. They don't have Jalen anymore. He primarily guarded Russ in that one, Smart did, but he was on Beal a lot too. There was tons of switching onto whoever was handling, super active, getting up in guys' faces, lots of helping off of Russ onto Beal. So he was kind of all over the place, but he was primarily on Russ. But now that you don't have Jalen, who is obviously a really high-level perimeter defender, there is a huge burden on Smart to be that perimeter stopper and to step up basically whenever he can and take whichever one of those guys is on the ball and make life hard on them. And I think that that is going to be pivotal here because the Wizards have been an above-average team when Bradley Beal is out there. They're 31-29 and 29 in games that he's played, which is a lot better than their overall record would tell you because they've struggled so much without him. And it's because he's such a valuable, all-around, versatile offensive weapon. And you can't fully take him away just by sticking on him when he has the ball in his hands because he's so good off the ball as well. And so they're kind of going to have to pick their spots with Smart here. And I'll be interested in seeing... If it's not smart, who is the guy on the other guard for the majority of the time? Because I don't think it's Tatum. I think you probably put Tatum on Bertans. Obviously, Bertans comes off the bench, but he's still playing a majority of the team's minutes. And so there's a lot of interesting matchup stuff here. But at the end of the day, if you can get smart on these guys for the majority of the game, I think he could have a real impact there. Because if one of them has an off night and he is liable to force anybody into an off night every single time out there then you're winning this game. Because I don't think that they survive an off night from Beal or Russ, as sketchy as the Celtics have been lately and as much trouble as they've had. Yeah, I agree. So who is your official pick then? Who Would you put Fournier? Would you ask him to step up? Kemba? Yeah, I guess it's Fournier. I mean, I don't want Kemba out there, that's for sure. But you're not going to have that second impact guy. And like that really hurts because Jalen was that second impact guy and that makes this matchup a lot more favorable for you. So... Let's take this big picture here. Oh, sorry. You got something else to say here? No, I just want to ask, do you think uh, Peyton Pritchard, is he of any of importance in this game? Is he going to have to have an impact off the bench for the Celtics to win? Interesting question. I think it would certainly be nice because, as I've said, the Celtics just don't have as many guys who I trust as they did previously. And Pritchard is one of their better bench players. I mean, we've seen Neesmith trend in the right direction as well. I think it'd be certainly nice if he could come in and just knock down four threes and run the offense for a little bit competently when their stars are on the bench. That could absolutely change this game. I don't know if we can rely on it, though, which is why I'm focusing so much on the guys who are a little more battle-tested, those veteran guys who we know can go out there and score 20 for you because I just don't trust the other pieces for Boston enough to say we can bet on that, we can expect that to be a real difference maker. So let's go big picture here. What's your prediction for this game? I'm... I'm not confident in this pick at all. Uh, I'm taking the Wizards to win, and this is this is the devil I know versus the devil I don't. The devil I do mm-hmm. know is Russell Westbrook, and I know he can send the Wizards down the drain, but considering the Celtics are missing their second guy and they've been inconsistent all season long, the devil I don't know is can that Celtics second guy step up? I haven't seen it all year, especially now that they're missing Jalen Brown. 
I know Russ can put his team in precarious positions, can shoot this team out of a ball game. I will stick with the team with the better top two guys on the floor in a one-game scenario. So I'm going to take the Wizards, but I am really scared with the pick. I think that you are probably with the majority there because obviously the Wizards have been really good as of late. They're 15-5 and five over their last 20, and they're better than that in games that Russ and Beal have played together. And the Celtics look lost. And as you mentioned, they're without their second-best guy, and they're on a little bit of a skid here. I still think I'm going to bet on the ticks here, and I don't feel great about this at all. I don't know how you could, based on what we've seen from Boston as of late. But I still think, even though this team is obviously not what it has been for the past few years, they have more guys who I trust. I think that they have four guys who I can look at and say, those are really good basketball players in Fournier, Smart, Kemba, guys who I think can step up and win you a game, guys who I kind of expect to make big shots, even if they haven't been the most consistent this year. And the Wizards have two of those guys, and one of them... One of my keys to the game was him staying under control. So I don't think he can be that guy you can point at and say, yeah, I'm sure he's going to play his best basketball in Russell Westbrook. So these teams are both weird. They both have question marks, but I think that the Celtics still have the higher two-way ceiling. I think that they have more good players. I think they're better coached. I think that they have a star who can go out there and compete with a Beal at the top and have a massive game that could win them this whole thing. And so I'm going to bet on that, but I'm not comfortable with it because they haven't been good for much of this season. Yeah, I want to ask you uh, one more, I guess, kind of big picture thing, Carson, and that's like, how big of a deal do you think this is, this play-in tournament is for Russell Westbrook's reputation as a basketball player? Like, what happens if the Wizards get played off the court and don't even get into the playoffs? They, you know, lose both of these games. How are we looking at Westbrook's value around the league? That's an interesting question. I feel like there's such distinct camps with Russ. It's either the ultimate appreciator of his talent people who uh, still can convince themselves he's like a borderline top 10 player or there are the people who will denounce his inefficiencies and all that but there is definitely a middle ground and there's people who appreciate him in his good moments and acknowledge his bad moments I think it's kind of tough to say until we see it play out my guess though is it's not going to firmly change anybody else's opinion because it's either going to be a continuation of what we've seen in this home stretch of this season where He's been playing really well. He's been having that massive playmaking impact. Or it's going to be a repetition of what we've seen in previous play-in, playoff games where he can kill his team if he tries to do too much in those games. But either way, it's going to be one of those two outcomes, I think. I don't think that we're going to see a real down-the-middle Russell Westbrook. So it's an interesting one. All right, so let me let me change that uh, question slightly then. Do you think it impacts his standing with the Wizards at all? No, I think that they're kind of in with this core. I think that the end of this season was encouraging enough for them to say, okay, if we get a couple more good pieces around them, we can be back in the playoffs next year. And clearly that's what they're trying to do because they're nowhere close to contention. And they knew that they wouldn't be anywhere close to contention when they added Russ. And if that's the vision you have for yourself, uh, this year has affirmed that you can achieve that vision. You can be a solid basketball team and uh, I don't think that whether or not they get into the play-in changes that I think that the home stretch of the season changed that though because if they don't go 15 and 5 down this home stretch uh, maybe <laughs> they just immediately jump ship and say okay this was a terrible disaster of an experiment but that didn't happen Russ proved that he can impact winning here and uh, that's commendable and it's been a really fun home stretch for the Wizards all right let's move on to the second game out east in my opinion much less exciting but we've got Pacers Hornets in the 9-10 and this was an undetermined matchup until the final day when the Wizards beat the Hornets. So a little bit of fun pre-play-in, playoff environment stuff there because that definitely did matter for these teams, having double elimination versus single elimination. But what's your first key to this game, Logan? 
So my first key is for Charlotte, and it's really simple. You have got to do everything in your power. You've got to be exhaustive in slowing down DeMontis Sabonis. And uh, he's carved up Charlotte in games this season. He's put up 17, 11, and 7 on 64-50 shooting splits against the Hornets this year. And, you know, the raw offensive numbers may not do uh, this argument a lot of credit. Sabonis is only in the 17th percentile of offensive points per possession this season. But you just watch a Pacers game and you see how much he does for this offense. He's bringing the ball up in transition. He's running the fast break. He's playmaking out of the post. He's playmaking from the top of the key and genuinely running the offense in some sets. He is always screening at the top of the key, at the elbow, at the hash. He's using DHOs to open up shots for his teammates. He's a good catch-and-shooter from the mid-range from behind the arc. He possesses great touch around the rim and in the paint. So the question is for Charlotte, how do you do it? Uh, I think there's a few things that Charlotte can do game plan-wise to try to throw Sabonis off his game. First, press him when he has the ball at the top of the key. It doesn't change the fact. Sabonis is not a good ball handler. You know, he's got one good hand, his right. Press him at the top of the key when he's got the rock. Force him to panic, maybe cough the ball up a few times. Uh, another one, when he's bringing the ball up in transition on the fast break, don't backpedal to the paint. Press him. Take away those passing lanes so he's not playmaking in transition. Um, you play physical and tough inside. Try to tire him out. Try to bully him. Just put some wear and tear on his tread on his tires as the game goes on. And lastly, fight through every screen. No one to switch off. Obviously, this is all easier said than done. DeMontis Sabonis is a special talent. I think the more important question when it comes to Charlotte is, do they have the defensive personnel to slow him down? Yeah. Like, I don't know what guy you put on him. I remember uh, Bill Simmons and company uh, were talking about a potential Miles Turner trade earlier in the year. That would have made this really interesting. I really like that. Um, it would have made this matchup way more interesting, and I think that's the one piece that Charlotte needs. But, yeah, I don't know who you put on Simonis at this point. Uh, <laughs> you throw Bismack Biombo at him. Um, I, you know, I think there's a clear, like what I laid out, I think there's a clear path of what to do. I just don't know if they have the defensive personnel on this roster to actually, you know, go out and make it happen. But uh, I think Sabonis has to be the guy that you focus on uh, if you're Charlotte. 100%. He is the centerpiece of this offense, and even if the raw numbers are sometimes comparable to a Brogdon or to a Levert, those guys can kind of rotate having their big scoring playmaking nights from the perimeter. Sabonis averages the second most touches per game in basketball, second only to Nikola Jokic, right ahead of Russell Westbrook. So you're talking about a guy who has the ball in his hands often, is going to get a touch at the elbow basically every possession, or feels like it at the very least. My question is just do they have the personnel, because... It's not exactly like Cody Zeller is the kind of guy who I trust to get up in Sabonis' face and not get beaten off the bounce. Not that Sabonis is explosive there, but he's more explosive than Cody Zeller. And Biombo, kind of a similar situation. I think that those guys are both fine interior defenders, but when you start bringing them a little further out to the perimeter, to 16, 18 feet, I get a little bit less comfortable, and that might be part of the problem of this matchup. But... At the same time, if Sabonis is going to be taking 10 mid-range jumpers in this game and they're not falling, then maybe you can kind of take him out of his rhythm in that way. So I think you've highlighted an interesting roadmap. My question is just, as you said at the end, do they have the personnel to execute it? And I think it's tough to completely take away Sabonis because everything is structured to run through him. But I also think it's very possible that for a number of reasons, he doesn't have a monster game himself, like if the shots just aren't falling, and then your path becomes a little easier, but the Pacers are well-equipped to overcome that as well because they just have so many good mm -hmm. players, and their depth is obviously one of their strengths, and that feeds right into my first key to this game, which is bench play on both sides because we have a couple of really strong 
top guys off of both of these benches who can swing a game. For the Pacers, if they were fully healthy, their bench would be unreal. If they still had TJ Warren out there, and if Jeremy Lamb had been healthy this whole year, then you're talking about a bench that includes guys like Doug McDermott or Justin Holiday, Jeremy Lamb, a couple guys who have sort of been forced into those starting spots or haven't been able to be out there. But you still have TJ McConnell and Aaron Holiday off the bench. And TJ McConnell just had his fourth 15-assist game of the season. That is absurd for a guy who's running things off the bench. I'm obviously a huge TJ fan. I've talked about it before. And Holiday's the kind of guy who can have a two-way impact, who can get his own shot, who can knock down a few threes in a game, and can swing things there. And so I think that either of those guys could really change this game when they sort of have the ball in their hands for the majority, particularly TJ because of his ability to elevate others and to work hard on the defensive end as well. And then for the Hornets... It's Malik Monk and Devontae Graham because both those guys have the potential to swing a game with their offense. Devontae has 12 20-point games this year. Malik has eight. Devontae also obviously has the playmaking impact. He has the fact that he's just one of the best pure shooters in basketball. And if he's raining threes, then he's going to have a monster game. And in a game with so few stars where it feels like both these teams are kind of defined by their depth and by their well-roundedness, these kind of guys can change everything and they can be the deciding factor in a game and that's kind of what I'm expecting. It also would be really fun. I like a lot of these guys and if they had a big game, that would be exciting. But I think that that is going to be massive because are you going to get a 40-point game from anybody in this one? Probably not, but you could get a 15-10 and game from TJ McConnell or you could get 25 from Malik Monk and that would make all the difference. No, I think you have highlighted the most important aspect of this uh, game and... On the Hornet side of that, uh, this brings into my next key of the game. It's just simply, this is boring. It's tired. We've talked about it, and I feel like you could apply this to damn near any game. They have to knock down their jump shots. Mm-hmm. And if all else fails, I say get the ball to Miles Bridges and Scary Terry. Um, no player on Charlotte's roster uh, is over 40% from behind the arc over the last 10 games. And shooting has been the biggest reason for this losing streak against the Knicks. Rozier goes 1 of 7 from behind the arc. PJ goes 0 of 5. Monk goes 0 of 4. Ball goes 0 of 4. Against the Clippers, Rozier knocks down 1 of 7. Uh, Devontae knocks down 1 of 6. Against the Nuggets, PJ goes 0 of 9 from deep. Rozier goes 2 of 8. And again, it comes back to jump shooting for any game, but especially with the streak that the Hornets have been on, they have got to knock down their jumpers here in this one. And as for who's uh, who the ball is going to be in, whose hands it's going to be in, if these guys aren't knocking down their shots, I think you have to turn to Terry and Miles. Honestly, that being said, though, if the Hornets aren't knocking down their jump shots, I don't give them a prayer at winning this basketball game. Um, Rozier, if his jumper isn't falling, he's a decently effective player. He can get to his own spots in the mid-range. He can create for himself and get to the rack, but he's still not hes not the same player without his jumper. And as for Bridges, I know we can go out there and get himself a bucket. He's grown a little bit as a playmaker, a ball handler, and a facilitator with Gordon Hayward out. You know, he's at super athletic and explosive, but... You know, without guys shooting around them, uh, I don't give Charlotte a prayer. So uh, I think the most important thing for Charlotte in this game, defensively they're going to have their hands full with Sabonis and all these other talented scorers. Uh, They could get easily ran off the court if this shooting slump continues, though. So this is interesting because I think we can both agree that the Hornets are needing offensive punch right now. They're 9-18 and without Gordon Hayward on this year. It's looking like he's out for the play, and he's been out for 24 games, I think. They just lost five straight, and... I don't really think they have enough punch unless something exceptional happens. And maybe it's that Rozier game. Maybe it's that Bridges game. But the thing with Rozier is 
when he explodes, when he goes crazy, he just doesn't do so in a way that makes other people better. And he doesn't maximize his gravity there. He's scored 30 or more nine times this year, and the Hornets are four and five in those games. And it's certainly nice to have a guy average th- or, or a guy score 30. I mean, that's going to help you win a game. But I would kind of rather put the ball in the hands of a guy who, like Gordon Hayward, has the poise, the control of the game to get his own, to make others better, to do it on three levels. And yes, Logan, I'm talking about LaMelo. And this is also certainly influenced by the fact that I obviously want to see LaMelo be put in a big spot immediately as a rookie. But I kind of think LaMelo is the guy to turn to in this game because for a team that is struggling to find a direction at this point in the season and that has lost their best player and really been performing poorly without him, go to the guy who can actually control the game out of the pick and roll, who can elevate others, and who can just make this offense run a little more smoothly. And it's a little different from what they've done this year. It's not like they've ever had that one dominant ball handler. They have a bunch of guys who move the ball well, a bunch of guys who can get their own shot. And Hayward was just part of that mix. It's not like he was dominating the ball like a Luka Doncic. I mean, he was also cutting a lot, and he was curling off screens and getting into his mid-range jumper and all that. It's been the ultimate team effort, But when it comes to games like this, you kind of need that one guy to be the alpha and you need that one guy to step up and say, I'm not going to just go crazy and take a bunch of bad shots, but I'm going to be the general for this one do or die game. And as crazy as it is, because he's a rookie, I want to see Lomelo try to do that. And I think that it would be the best thing for them. I actually like that more than uh, than my take, because it doesn't make sense. Uh, Like if Rozier and Bridges aren't, yeah, if Rozier and Bridges aren't knocking down their shots with the rest of the crew, they're ineffective. Mm -hmm. Screw it, man. Just put LaMelo <laughs> out there 38 minutes. Let him <laughs> let him run the offense. Play the Gordon Hayward role. I think that, I don't know, that actually is a way more logical roadmap to a victory than just trying to have ISO possessions all game long. Yeah. And the thing it's, is, Rozier and Bridges can score their 25 off of LaMelo creating shots for them. It's not like those guys need to go out and get their own. They can both be great off the catch. So give me the guy who's the floor general. I think it would be a lot of fun. I hope that we see something like it, but... I don't know, man. I don't really trust the Hornets to do anything very well with how they've been trending right now. So was that is that one of your takes, though? That is. That's my second one. So we'll go to you for your third. What's the last key to this one? Uh, in a similar fashion to LaMelo, uh, I have a guy that I want the Indiana Pacers to feed on the other side, and that's Karis LeVert. Uh, I, I was really skeptical, Carson, earlier in the year with the Oladipo move just because uh, you know I didn't know how much value LeVert gave you on the defensive end. I don't care, man. That guy can just flat out get a bucket. Um, and he seems to be exactly what the Pacers needed. I also want to confirm, um, I know Brogdon's been out. Is Do you, do you have any clue on if he's going to be playing in this game? That's a good question. I'm not sure. Let me see if there's an update on that. Um, I, I had seen that he had been out with, uh, you know, he's been out with a knee injury. Um, excuse me, no, a hamstring injury. So, if he's not back, I think that uh, even more so that the Pacers are going to have to feed somebody on offense. And I think nobody better uh, fits that bill than Karras. Um, over the last 10, he's putting up 25 on 44-40-88 shooting splits. Uh, he's had you know four 30-point games in the last few weeks against Washington, Atlanta, Washington again, Brooklyn. And to speak to his bag, man, he's just he's filthy. He's got a nasty step back. He freezes guys with that nasty hesitation move. He takes guys off the dribble well, uses his body weight to get better positioning on the inside. He fights really well through contact, and he's a good shooter inside the arc. That little, um, that little, like, post-fade he does at the elbow where he jabs his, you know, right foot inside and then fades. It's a really consistent shot. He's a really talented ISO scorer with or without screens. You can tell when he's got the ball in his hands, he is looking to go out and get his own bucket, and 
in those games where he's had good scoring nights, it's produced wins for the Pacers. They're 10 and 7 when he scores 20 or more. They're 8 and 10 when he scores 19 or less. You know, it may be a very small margin in between those games, but it matters. And in a one game scenario like this, where you may not have uh, the depth that you once had earlier in the year, you may not have Malcolm Brogdon on the floor. You need somebody to go out and get buckets, and Karis Levert can just uh, can do just that. So the Brogdon situation is going to be interesting because he was a game-time decision yesterday, ended up not playing. I kind of feel like if you're a game-time decision a couple days out from a do-or-die scenario, you're probably going to play, but that kind of remains to be determined. And if he's not out there, I agree with you because then they do become so dependent on Levert as that primary perimeter creator. But I'm going to go with kind of a basic key to this game here, a little bit like what you said for the Hornets. I really do think this is going to come down to the the three-point shot for the Pacers. And you can say that about every game for every team because it is the single variable that will swing the results most often because it is such a crucial shot. But in Indiana, it's such a team effort that presuming they are fully healthy or not fully healthy, obviously, because they haven't been that all year, but presuming that Brogdon is out there, I don't know who I can single out as that one guy who has to go off, but... They are a hot and cold shooting team. In wins this year, they're 41% from deep. In losses, they're 33%. You're going to see a discrepancy with every single team, but 8% is a massive one. And that's not just about guys knocking down threes off the catch like the Holiday Brothers and McDermott. That's about can Levert and Brogdon knock down their pull-up threes as well. That's going to be huge in this one. And Levert's a fascinating case because his bag is so deep. I mean, he is a joy to watch when he's going. I think we really saw it immediately in this season in Brooklyn where he just looked like a slightly bigger Kyrie out there. He was so phenomenal in that mid-range area, just doing creative stuff with the ball in his hands. But it can be a bit of a double-edged sword because sometimes he just gets in his head that he has to go out there and score every time, and sometimes those tough shots aren't falling. So it's going to be really interesting to see how he manages that. Does he have a consistently productive game out there? I'm not positive, but it's going to come down to the three-point shot. And that's basic, and I wish that it wasn't my third take, but I don't really... Know what else to say for the Pacers because I kind of feel like if they just play good enough basketball, they should beat the Hornets with the way that they've been trending right now. So, on that note, let's get into our actual predictions. What do you see happening in this one? Yeah, I completely agree. Without Gordon Hayward, I don't think the Hornets, uh, I don't think they've got a shot. 9 and 19 without him, like you mentioned earlier. And uh, Rod Boone of SI.com gave an update. He is going to be out for the play in um, despite being out originally four weeks last month. It was hopefully be back, but they're three and seven in their last ten. They've lost six straight. They've got the eighth worst offensive rating over the last ten, the eleventh worst defensive rating. And frankly, at this point, the Pacers have dealt with their injuries. You know, Lamb, Holiday, Brogdon, Turner, even Edmund, you know, uh, Sumner. They've dealt with their injury concerns. They're still deeper than the Hornets. And yeah, ultimately, I trust Sabonis and Lavert to put up more buckets than I do for the Hornets to create reliable offense. So uh, I'm going to take the Pacers. I'm going to take the Pacers as well. This has more to do with the Hornets than the Pacers because as much as I liked what the Pacers did last year, this has obviously just been a disappointing season across the board for them. I think that outside of Boston, they're probably the most disappointing team in the NBA this season. But I just trust more of their guys to have an impact. I think that they're a little more battle-tested. I think that they're stronger at the top end. I think they're a little deeper. Why are you making that face at me, Logan? You look perplexed. Why do you say that? I mean, why do you say that? Why do you think this has been such a disappointing season for Indiana? Like, why have I been disappointed, or what have been the reasons they haven't been as good? I mean, 
why, like, I just don't get why you had such high expectations for them this season. Because they were really good last year, and conceivably they should have been better this year with Oladipo coming back healthy, obviously it ended up being that he didn't stick around. And yeah, injuries have played a factor in that. If TJ Warren's healthy for this whole year, maybe they're better offensively. If Miles Turner's better this whole year, then I'd say they're definitely better defensively because they've seen a huge drop-off since he got hurt. They've been 21st in defensive rating since he got injured. But I just expected more out of this team, and I think that if Nate McMillan was still here, maybe they would have been a little better because I thought he was a really good coach, and they replaced him with a guy, Nate Bjorkren, who I haven't been impressed by and who's probably going to be gone after this year. And I just think they took a step back in a time in which they really should have been only progressing. Like, they have a pretty young roster. They kept all their key guys. They conceivably added another one in Levert, who, who it ended up being initially could have been Oladipo. So I was disappointed with that. And I just think that they showed that they maybe don't have enough punch, enough difference makers to really be elite on either end. And that's kind of what held them back. But I do think they're better than the Hornets, and I do think that they win this one. Let's move now to the West in what I think is certainly the marquee game of the play-in slate. It's going to be the last one. We're going to talk about it now. Lakers-Warriors, 7-8. and eight. Steph Curry, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Draymond Green, all in one big game right on your TV screen. Logan, I think this is going to be a really fascinating matchup, but what's your first key here? So I say let's get the boring, you know, tired old one out the way. It's for the Lakers. It is, one, be competent offensively when LeBron's not out on the court, Mm -hmm. considering this is – it's not an elimination game, obviously, right now, but considering the stakes in this game and how – desperately the Lakers want to get into the playoffs. LeBron's mostly going to be on the floor most of this game. He's going to play, you know, near 48 minutes. But they need to be competent when he's not there and have some playmakers. And again, at the end of the day, they have to knock down their shots. We have beat this narrative like a dead horse, but it is still relevant. When LeBron is not on the floor, the Lakers have an offensive rating of 107.7. You know, Carson, that would rank number three best in the league. In LeBron's rookie season in 2021, that's the fifth worst offense in basketball. And as for their shooting, they've only got five guys over the last 10 games who are above 40% off the catch. That's Gasol, Matthews, Caruso, Horton, Tucker, and McLemore. Um, We have seen them struggle with shooting all season long. We saw it last year. It is still the chief concern of this offense. It is why they cannot create reliable opportunities for people. And with LeBron off the court, it is because they have no reliable playmakers to create offense. Alex Caruso cannot go out there and command the attention that LeBron does. They need to... I don't know who you turn to. I don't know if you stagger minutes to make sure Dennis Schroeder is running the second unit. You have got to just be average and keep the game close when LeBron's not on the floor and when he's out there, you better be knocking down your shots or you're going to get an earful from the King. Uh, It's a boring take. It is a boring key, but it is always going to be important for teams and it is always important for the Lakers. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And it's specifically true for them because of the fact that their four starters, as far as LeBron, AD, Drummond, and Schroeder are all primarily trying to get into the paint and do the majority of their work in there. And so you got to have one guy around them in KCP who can knock down shots. And when those guys are off ball, particularly Schroeder, he's got to be able to knock down his shots as well. And I think that it would be wise for them to stagger his minutes. And so he can be that primary creator in those non-LeBron minutes. And I feel pretty strongly about that. But it's going to be interesting because you expect LeBron and AD obviously to carry the vast majority of the load in this one, even though they both tweaked their ankles in last night's game, which was really weird and a little bit alarming to see. Apparently, they're both going to be fine. LeBron says he's completely fine. And so that's good news for Lakers fans, obviously. I kind of think that this one 
comes down to just a personnel matchup more than anything else. And it's how do the Warriors match up with the Lakers bigs? Because obviously we're talking about teams that are on very different side of the spectrums here as far as size. I think the Warriors are at their best when they're playing 6'5", Draymond Green at center. And the Lakers are starting two basically seven-footers and a bulldozer of a small forward at, in LeBron James at the three. And so it's going to come down to how do the Warriors try to counter that size and can the Lakers survive maybe some of the things that they give up by playing so big? Because AD's been phenomenal recently. He's finally started to look like himself this year, putting up 28 a game over his last five, had a couple of monster performances. I assume you put Draymond on him. And if you're putting Draymond on him, that means you may have to play Looney some heavier minutes to counter Drummond because... Other than that, you're going to be really undersized. And that means, obviously, that you lose shooting offensively and things get more congested, which means it's easier for the Lakers to blitz Steph, to just bring help on him at all times, to have two defenders effectively dedicated to him because you don't have shooters around him who can punish that. You're looking at a couple shooters on the court with him in that starting five if you have Draymond and Looney out there as well. And the Lakers have already done a really good job on Steph this year. He's averaged 23 a game on 42% from the field in their three games against each other. He had that really great fourth quarter in their first matchup after he struggled for most of that game, but he hasn't had that full game explosion. And if they are going to try to counter LA's two big lineup by effectively playing two bigs, because Draymond isn't an actual big, but he's a non-floor spacer, and defensively he can be a big, I'm just a little worried things get too congested for the Warriors. Their offense sputters, an offense that has been much better as of late. And I think the alternative to this is, you put Wiggins on on Drummond, and you keep AD on Draymond, or vice versa, I should say. You keep Draymond on AD, and you double Drummond if it looks like Wiggins outmatched, and you force him to make good decisions, and you force guys around him to knock down shots because it's a gamble, obviously. You're sending a second defender at him, but I don't exactly trust Andre Drummond to be dissecting out of the post there. And yeah, I think that he's going to score the majority of the time he has Wiggins one-on-one, -on -one, but there's also going to be some ugly possessions even there, I think. So I kind of prefer that one. I would prefer saying, let's let Drummond try to beat us. And then on the opposite side, we'll be too quick offensively. We'll move the ball well. We'll have guys make good decisions off the roll. We'll shoot a bunch of threes. And then we'll play him off the court. And then I think you get rid of that mismatch entirely. The other problem with this, though, is if LeBron's on AD, who the hell is guarding LeBron? Or if Draymond's on AD. I think I said if LeBron's on AD. Because then you're looking at JTA, Bays as your options. It's just kind of an all-around physical mismatch. They're two teams that are so, so different. But I think it's going to come down to how the Warriors counter this. And personally, I say go a little smaller and play Drummond off the court. So we have really similar keys for the Warriors here. And I think you touched on um, something with the Drummond matchup on defense. So I noticed a couple games ago when the Lakers were playing the Pacers, we saw a lot of switches where Karis Levert would go to Drummond on the inside. It didn't matter because Drummond is such an ineffective scorer in there. He has so little touch. Yes, he was getting his buckets periodically, but I'd rather take that mm -hmm. than letting LeBron beat you up. I personally, I would have Wiggins on LeBron. I would have Draymond on AD. And I would just put whoever that, I mean, maybe you put Looney out there and put him on Drummond. Maybe you put another shooter out there. I just think Drummond is such a little factor that, uh, that I think you could, I'm not, I don't want to say you could just put anyone on him, but you can give up some size and still be okay with Drummond. But I think you picked even more apart here. I'll let you go. Well, I was just going to ask, 
who is the guy who you can conceivably put on him without giving up too much size? Because I think Wiggins, at least he's 6'8", he's a vertical athlete. Outside of that, the Warriors are small, man. And Drummond can put a dude in the bucket. You really just need, all the Warriors need is just a five who can shoot, man. Oh, sure do. But they're not going to find one I right now. <laughs> that would I don't that would solve all their issues in this matchup. Um, but I think you really highlighted uh, something important on the offensive end, and it's something that you can exploit all night. With Draymond and Steph out there, I trust them to pick apart AD, Drummond, Gasol, and Trez in the pick and roll on offense and get those switches uh, because of your speed. But I think the biggest thing, all game long, uh, Carson, I am running, whoever is at that five spot, if it's Draymond, if it's Looney, I am running off-ball screens all night. I want them to switch a big because I, I'm gonna I'm gonna force the Lakers to put that big on the outside and tray and uh, trail Steph all night, just creating mm -hmm. those off-ball opportunities. He is obviously gonna run and sprint and cut around the court all night. Force those bigs to come out on the perimeter and be uncomfortable. And I think I obviously here in this game, you just want more perimeter scoring opportunities for the Warriors, and you want to lessen them for the Lakers, give you more of those three-point opportunities. And I think it's a mismatch that you can exploit because of how big the Lakers unit is. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, they're good defenders, but uh, AD and Drummond have a, a reluctancy to go out to the perimeter sometimes. I think it's something that you can exploit on both ends. Yeah, I think that's what you're going to have to try to do. You're going to have to try to win this game primarily from the three-point line. And that's the thing. The Warriors have been shooting the ball really well lately. And when they shoot the ball really well, they're a really good team. And when they move the ball well, and when they take advantage of Steph's gravity, like we've seen a little bit more as of late, they're just a really good team on both ends because defensively they've been good all year. But offensively, then things start to flow as well, and they become scary in those situations as well. And my second key is another guy who makes that Warriors offense a little bit scarier, not necessarily in a way in which he plays off of Steph or the starting group, but that's right, Logan. You've anticipated it yet again. I think that Jordan Poole is a key to this game because it just feels like the Dubs will need a little extra punch because they've been so good as of late, but I still think they're outmatched here. We're talking about the Lakers who are now fully healthy, and when they've been fully healthy, they have been damn good. We can focus on some of the problems that remain, but when they've been out there and they've had their full group, they've actually been still an elite team, and I think that they're still my title favorite at this point. And so I think if you're going to try to win this, you need somebody to carry in non-Steph minutes and that's Poole. He's the guy with the deepest bag. He's the guy with the, the, with the highest level of shot creation for himself, the most confidence. And in this six-game win streak, he's averaging over 20 a game on 39% from three. So if you're going to find a difference maker who's not in that starting five, it's going to be him. It's not going to be Michael Mulder off the catch. It's not going to be Bays doing God knows what. It's going to be the guy who can actually score for himself at a high level, and that could swing this game. So a little quicker on that one. My second key to this one, what's your final key here? Um, my final key is really simple, and if the Warriors, if the Warriors go out and uh, execute the game plan like we have laid out, I think there's one thing that you can do for uh, on defense against the Warriors, and that's that's put LeBron on Steph all Ooh. game long. I mean, I no offense, Carson. I don't mean this in any disrespectful way. I think you'll agree with me. I would trust. <laughs> Force everybody else on this Warriors roster yeah. to beat me except for Steph. Mm -hmm. I he, 32 points per game on 65.5 true shooting percentage. Steph has willed this team here. I'm putting LeBron on Steph all game long. I am forcing Wiggins. I'm forcing Draymond. I am forcing Jordan Poole. Whoever is on that floor, I am forcing them all to um, 
try to beat me. And I mean, we've seen this backfire on teams before because when you are a playmaker of the caliber of Steph and Draymond, they can still find shots for other guys. But would you rather have Steph taking those shots or would you rather have other guys taking those shots? Obviously, I'm going to take other guys all game long. So I think the way to do it, screw it, put LeBron on Steph and see what happens. Try to just clamp him up, keep his scoring load to a minimum and take away as many passing lanes, scoring opportunities as you can. I think the best defender is still LeBron on this roster. Throw him at Steph and uh, see what happens. It's interesting. I don't think it happens, though, just because that's so much effort on both ends for LeBron at that point because Steph is not like anybody else you guard in basketball. You are chasing him around the entire game, and I don't know if we can really expect 36-year-old LeBron to do that because I think that their perimeter guards defensively are good. I mean, KCP and Caruso, those guys could do a perfectly satisfactory job and I think could do really well in that role maybe even better than LeBron straight up and I just think that's too much work then because offensively he has to go berserk and I think that that's my final key it's an obvious one but AD and LeBron have to go superhuman here and I think that they will I fully expect them to and outside of that it's just going to be about guys knocking down shots but when you have these two unstoppable interior forces I just feel like now we're at the point where we're going to see a repeat of last postseason, and we're going to see why these guys are the defending champions because they have two players who you just can't stop and who get to their spots and who are among the best in basketball night in, night out. And I think that that's where the Warriors just become a little bit overwhelmed because they don't have enough answers. Defensively, I just don't think that they quite have enough real high-level impact guys. You can only put Draymond on one of them. And Wiggins, again, as we touched on, it's going to be interesting to see where he lands. I think he's your best option outside of dream on for LeBron no doubt but we'll see if he spends the majority of the game on him and I just think those guys are going to go berserk so uh, let's get into our predictions here what do you see happening call me crazy I'm taking the dubs wow um uh they've just been <laughs> they've been stupid hot lately and uh I think that I don't know man this is, this is hard to justify considering I called LeBron and AD the greatest duo of all time last season you did. uh They've had their fair fair share of struggles, um, and maybe I'm just counting on a cold shooting night from the Lakers. I just, <laughs> man, I hate the Warriors' defensive personnel, so this is a hot take, but um, I think Steph's going to go off. I think guys are going to shoot well. I think that I think that Steph is going to be a nightmare for this team off ball, and is going to force these bigs to get out to the perimeter. I think they exploit that mismatch, and Steph has a huge night. It's. I also think that the injury concerns with LeBron and AD come into play a little bit here, but I think it's doable. Steph's obviously going to have to have a mammoth game for this to happen, but uh, I'm going to ride with the Warriors, man. They have been super, super hot recently. A, you know, eight and two in their last ten, the eleventh best uh, offensive rating, the best defensive rating over the last ten. Give me the Dubs, man. It's a hot take. I mean, it's not completely inconceivable because we're talking about a single game format here. I just think LeBron and AD, when they're out, to, out there together, they've still outscored opponents by 11 points per 100. They've been an elite basketball team, and I feel like the last couple games, we've seen that team come back to life. Those dudes are just too scary for me to bet against. If guys are knocking down shots for the dubs, and if everybody's making good decisions, that ball is moving, and they try to take away Steph, but instead it's Draymond picking dudes apart off the short roll, and everybody's hitting from the corners, they can win this game. I'm not going to say that they can't win this game, what I am going to say is I think LeBron and AD are going to leave everything out there. I think that they might just be a little bit too powerful, a little bit too good on the interior. And 
good as too good as a two-way team. I mean, this defense is outstanding, and I do think that they have the personnel to make life hard on the dubs there. So I can't bet on it. Um, I do want to ask one question about the potential matchups. If you were the Lakers or, or Warriors and had your pick at taking on the Suns or Jazz, who would you rather face in the first round? <sighs> That's a tough one. I mean, it depends on if Donovan Mitchell is back because uh, we still don't know that he's going to be back for the beginning of this series. But I think when they're fully healthy, the Jazz are the better team. I think that the shooting is too good. I think that defensively they're better. And I think that they just have, as I've said before, as good of a top seven as I've ever seen. But it's close, man. No doubt about that. And Suns-Lakers first round would be such a grind. I would like to see that. And then I think Jazz-Warriors would be fun. It would be a little more up-tempo, a little more about just rain and threes. And the Warriors have played the Jazz really well this year. So that would be a fun one to see play out. But, I mean, that's the caliber of first-round matchups we're going to be getting here. It's going to be unbelievable. Unbelievable. But the play-in is going to be equally unbelievable, I think. This game is going to have an incredible atmosphere. And hopefully, it is competitive enough to live up to the hype and the excitement and the stage that it is going to be played on. Last play-in game here, as far as the first round goes. Grizzlies-Spurs. Again, not quite as exciting as the 7-8 out west. But what's your first key to this one? Uh, My first key is for the Spurs... And if I was Greg Popovich, I am taking, <laughs> I'm taking Demar Derozan, I'm taking Jakob Pertl, I am taking all of this entire team, and we are going to the local monastery, the local church, the <laughs> local mosque, the local synagogue, and I implore the San Antonio Spurs to pray for a victory. Yeah. Um, honestly, I don't think the Spurs have a chance at winning this basketball game. Um, I'm going to be honest. Their offense has been anemic over the last 10. Their defense has been even worse. DeMar DeRozan has been the only competent offensive basketball player, and they have no real playmaking engine. So I'm spoiling my result here already. I just, I don't think the Spurs have a prayer at winning this game. Um, They're they're not as deep as the Grizzlies. They're struggling with... uh, They've just been so bad recently, man. I I have zero faith in the Spurs to win this game. I think you need a, I guess a realistic key is Demar goes off. You see Lonnie Walker go off and <laughs> Dejounte Murray go off. But that is a tall feat to ask for this team, and I just don't think they're as deep as the Grizzlies. All right, well, Logan, I very much agree with you in that the Spurs are not in a good spot right now. And it has been such a disappointing finish to what was such a fun season for them. And they've just been a train wreck as of late after really hovering above 500 for so much of the year. I'm going to key in on one guy as far as what I think is the key for them offensively in this one. And that is can DeMar DeRozan go berserk? Because in wins this year, it has been him carrying them to that spot for the most part. He's scored three more points per game in wins and in losses. He's averaged one more assist per game. He shot 5.5% better from the field. Has just been all around more efficient, more productive as a playmaker and a scorer. And I think that's what they need right now because I just don't trust anyone else in this offense enough. They're 19th in offensive rating on the year. They make the least threes in the league. And yeah, they have a number of competent role guys. And they have a bunch of guys who could sort of come together and have a productive night. But who am I going to single out? It's nobody other than DeMar. And the problem is the Grizzlies are a top 17 defense. They're so good on that end. They work so hard. They're smart. They're well coached. And you've got... Dylan Brooks to throw at him, a highly competitive defender. Desmond Bain, about really as far as rookie standards, a pretty darn good defender. And so that's not going to be a walk in the park for him. He's going to have quality guys thrown at him, and getting downhill is not going to be effortless. He's going to have to work hard for these buckets. But I think that that has to be the roadmap for them. And I think that 
I've always had questions about DeMar and obviously his efficiency and how he converts to winning in the biggest moments, but he's the best player on your team. He's certainly the best offensive player, and I think he's the guy you have to lean on here. I think it's really interesting, Carson, that we're having this preview play-in game right now, uh, considering how earlier in the year uh, we asked on the show, who would we rather have in a one-game format, uh, Ja or DeMar? And uh, here we are. I think it's interesting that you highlight DeMar on the offensive end because I think it is the biggest key uh, here for the Grizzlies. <laughs> X out DeMar at all costs because I don't think you have to worry about anybody else. Uh, no other player is averaging more than 15 points per game over the last 10 other than DeMar. Only four players are in double-digit scoring. That's Murray, Gay, Johnson, Walker. And um, there's only two players above four assists per game. Like, they don't have a genuine playmaking engine on this roster. And... So many of these guys, what I just think the Spurs are lacking, obviously outside of shooting, um, and it's just creation by themselves. DeMar is the only guy that can confidently go out there and get a bucket in isolation, and it's a genuine concern. It's not like the Grizzlies have overwhelming talent there, but they have a reliable, consistent offense with Ja. They've got a lot of shooters around him. So for the Grizzlies, put your best defender on him. If that's Desmond Bain, whoever it is, uh, Hell, man, you could almost double-team DeMar. I just have so little confidence in the rest of the Spurs offense. Take out DeMar, and I think you easily walk away with a victory in this game. Yeah, and again, it's a shame that things have trended this way for the Spurs because we were so excited about their young guys early in the year, and I don't think that, that excitement is necessarily gone. It's just they're not fully ready to contribute to winning at the highest level yet. I, I want to ask, if Derek White was healthy, does that change your opinion on the Spurs at all? I mean, he's up there for their second best players, so it would change things. It wouldn't make them my pick, though. They'd be better on both ends, but not by enough, in my opinion. I'm going to focus now, though, on the guy who I think can change things defensively for the Spurs because I'm going to keep two of my three keys here on San Antonio because, really, I think if the Grizzlies just do their job, this is an easy win. But the question is, can Pirtle neutralize the Grizzlies' interior forces? Because... We've talked about Jakob Pertl a lot here on the show. We love him. All defense, honorable mention. He defends the third most shots in the NBA at the rim. He holds people 12% below their average there. And this is a Grizzlies team that is dependent on a couple of their top guys getting inside to do the majority of their work. And obviously the biggest factor in that is John Morant, who is not just going to affect the game getting downhill as a scorer, but also as a playmaker, collapsing defenses, making those incredible adjustments midair, kicking out to shooters, kicking out to the guy who's rolled alongside him, whatever. And so the question is, can Valanciunas, excuse me, can Pirtle make those finishes at the rim tough? Can he force Shad to kind of become a jump shooter? Can he force him to just hesitate a little bit when he's coming downhill? Probably not. He's a pretty confident guy, an incredible athlete, great finisher. All these things are true, but you got to have a hope somewhere if you're San Antonio. And can he keep other guys from having to help off of shooters, from having to rotate that much just by being there in position, affecting shots at all times. And then outside of Jaw, can he neutralize Valanciunas? Because there's a lot of matchups in which Valanciunas, as unique as he may be in today's NBA, just eats. He just kills people that don't have a real big man. And it's both on the glass and as that post scorer, sometimes it's that role man as well. I think Pearl can do that. And so I think if he can achieve those goals, and again, make it that much harder on Memphis to score inside. I think that their chances are better, but they still just have so many guys. They have so many shooters. They have so many quality basketball players on this team, and they're so good defensively. I don't think it's enough, but it would certainly help. I mean, if you can really affect Jaw and take him out of his element, that's a game changer. I just think that's going to be tough to do. 
Maybe that's something I hadn't considered, though. I, I hadn't even really considered Pirtle as a, a factor in this equation. He's a genuine... He's a guy who can disrupt stuff on the interior mm-hmm. floor. Um, against Memphis, the only thing is just with how prolific they have shooting around him. I just don't... I still don't like the personnel, but I think he can make it tough. And mm-hmm. honestly, I think Pirtle can have enough of an effect where he can make this a close game and have it come down to the wire. Because ultimately, that's all the Spurs need. They just need this game to come down yeah. to one shot. Obviously, that's easier said than done. But if you take away those points in the paint, if you are tenacious on the perimeter, the Spurs may be able to have an opportunity uh, in this game. But it is going to come down to Pirtle. I, I agree. Um, on the other end, uh, I think it's simple. It's something that we've touched on. I think it's a really simple key. Ja has got to dot shooters up and get his yep. assist. Uh they're 18 and 11 where Ja has eight plus assists. They're 15 and 19 in games where he has seven or less. They are at their best when he is playmaking, when he is finding those shooters around him. And more specifically, in games against the Spurs, that has been the ultimate deciding factor. Neither of these teams are super prolific three-point shooting teams. Uh, the Grizzlies are 20th in three-point percentage. The Spurs are 24th. But in their first victory versus the Spurs early in the year, they knocked down 17. In their second win versus them, they knocked down 15. And in their only loss, they knocked down 10. So I, I guess this is kind of a, yeah, it's like the Lakers, it's like the Warriors. Whoever mm-hmm. makes more threes, I'm probably going to take. But um, if the if Ja is creating those easy opportunities for his teammates, if he's collapsing that defense on the inside, I think the Grizzlies run away with this game. Yeah, and that's his greatest impact. It's kind of like what we talked about with Russ. It's, yes, he can dominate a game as a scorer but it's better off that he just tries to get downhill as much as he can and then whether it's scoring or playmaking has an impact in that way and he is just so great in those situations for me the key with the Grizzlies is just the role guys coming in big and that's the thing with them they win as a team John may be the face of it he may be their best player but could be Dylan Brooks could be Grayson Allen could be Desmond Brain, Desmond Bain could be De'Anthony Melton I trust all those guys to play well and I think that's the difference is the Spurs are deep but their depth just isn't quite as good. Like, I think the Grizzlies are such a foundationally strong team, such a good organization at this point that develop players so well and coach them how to play the right kind of basketball. And they just have a whole group of those guys who I think are going to go out there and win them this game, even if Ja doesn't have his best. Yeah, and I want to throw out a stat here, Carson. The Grizzlies are 5-3 and three in games where Ja Morant scores 10 or less points. They're three and one when he scores seven or fewer points. I mean, what other team in basketball can you say that about for a yep. you know when a, their superstar doesn't perform? And they didn't have their second best player for most of those games too. I would imagine. Yeah, exactly. In in these games, it's it's stupid. He's shooting twenty six percent from the field and twenty percent from behind the arc, and then come away with wins because you just have so many talented guys. Yeah, and it's the defensive end. That's the thing. They're going to make life so hard on the Spurs. They're so competitive there, and they're going to be hungry, man. I just think they're going to be more confident. They're going to be more motivated. Nothing in this game makes me think San Antonio's going to win. Nothing at all, because even the one thing that can swing games most easily, as we've said, the three-point shot, the Spurs make the least threes in basketball. So they're less likely than anybody else to have that be the winning factor for them in a game. I'm so disappointed we didn't get Zion and B.I. in the play-in, man. It would have been a lot more fun. I will tell you that right now. But the Grizzlies deserve to be the heavy favorite here. They deserve to be, honestly, a legitimate playoff team because there's nine playoff caliber teams out west this year. Out east, 
There's seven. I think you can say there's eight with how the Wizards have been playing as of late, but the Grizzlies are a really good basketball team, and uh, maybe we don't get to see them in the real playoffs, but they're certainly my pick. I Sounds like you agree, obviously, here. They're just the better team on both ends. They're deeper. Uh, they're better. Whoa, I was about to say they're better coached. They might be, dude. Taylor Jenkins is a really good coach. I don't know. I don't know. Tough. That's just a hard, that's a hard pill to swallow at this point, man. Yeah, well, you know what? It's still going up against the greatest coach of all time, or at least a top three coach of all time. So a pop can uh, rest on his laurels in that respect. So there is everything for these upcoming first couple games. And after these four do take place, we'll do a quick little preview pod of the second round of the play and stuff as well. But let's just give our two teams out of each conference now that we have coming out of the play and finally. So I have the Celtics obviously winning that 7-8 game automatically in. I have the Lakers winning that 7-8 game automatically in. Then when it comes down to the second game, which is loser of 7-8 versus winner of 9-10, I have the Wizards and the Warriors coming out. Who are your four? Yeah, I think I have the Wizards and Warriors obviously coming out first. I'm going to take the Lakers uh, in the scenario in which they have to play the Grizzlies. The Pacers are tough, man. Without JB, I think it's a genuine competitive matchup. I'm going to stick with the Celtics because I trust Jason Tatum more than I trust Karis LeVert to carry a team. But uh, I think Celtics-Pacers in the scenario in which we get that game is going to be really competitive and close. Yeah, so it's interesting because we have the opposite teams winning the first game. I have Celtics and Lakers. You have Warriors and Wizards. So for me, the second one would be Wizards-Pacers. I just think the Pacers, as they currently stand, without Turner, without Lamb, without TJ Warren, I don't think they're talented enough to overcome the star power that the Wizards have. And then Warriors-Grizzlies would be really fun, and they're both teams that are playing well as of late. I think the Grizzlies are deeper. They both are really good defensively, but obviously I'm going to go with the team that has by so far the best player in Steph Curry and a team that is beginning to really gel around him. I mean, Poole, JTA, even Michael Mulder. Bays, all these guys are playing their best basketball right now, and you have another real difference maker in Draymond, and so I'm just going to go with that, and it's going to be fun. We'll get to talk about these matchups a little bit more as we know what these specifics will be in those real do-or-die games, the second round of play and stuff, but right now we have the same four teams coming out of the play and ultimately, and it's going to be a really interesting experiment, and I'm very excited for it. What do you think, Logan? Is this a long-term solution in the NBA? Is this something that should stick around permanently, or is it just a COVID-shortened season solution? It's a good question. Um, personally, I like it. I mean, I just like giving more. I just like giving more opportunities to teams. Earn your way in, and for <laughs> obviously, I think if we got the Pelicans or some better teams uh, at the bottom of the totem pole, it would have been a little more interesting. But I love it moving forward. Earn your way in, and uh, it makes it also makes the regular season mean a little bit more. Like if would we have seen LeBron and AD come out and play against the Pelicans if it you know, wouldn't have mattered. No, those guys had to play late. So uh, I'm all for it. What about you? Yeah. So I'm a traditionalist and I didn't think I was going to be a play-in guy. And maybe there are modifications, like maybe it shouldn't be seven through 10. Maybe it should just be eight and nine, or maybe there should be a margin that triggers the plan. Actually, I think that's my favorite solution. Like what we had last year, where it's, if you're inside of a game, then you have the plan because we had one out West. We didn't have one out East. I think that that's fun. I think that it incentivizes obviously people playing their guys late in the season. And I just think it's more exciting, meaningful basketball that is a playoff atmosphere. 
I'm not too excited about the 9-10 matchup out East, though, or the 9-10 matchup out West, so maybe we took it a little far, and I don't think the Lakers should have to play in. Like, obviously, they were ravaged by injuries, a bunch of stuff that makes it abnormal for them, but I'm still excited about it. I mean, it's going to be fun, and I think long-term, it probably should stick around, and people can say, you don't need two-thirds of the league in the playoffs. Guess what? It's fun, and it's exciting, and in a league that is trying so hard to combat tanking, you can't also complain about tanking and then say, well, we shouldn't have this many teams in the playoffs. You know, you can't have your cake and eat it too, as they say, Logan. You got to try to find a solution for that to incentivize more competitive basketball. And I kind of think that's what the plan does. Like, if you're going to really suck, you're going to really suck. But if you think you can get into that 10 seed, maybe you play a little harder for it. And so it's fun. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. It gives you a little bit of that March Madness feel, which uh, mm-hmm. we've been lacking for a little bit in the NBA. I, I love that do or die uh you love Mm -hmm. those do or die games yeah and again very rarely are you going to see a team that actually 100% belongs no doubt in the playoffs get left out if we saw it happen to the Lakers that would be an exception uh that would maybe sour my feelings about it a little bit because that would be a bummer (laughs) but you take your chances stuff like that's not going to happen all that often so with that we are again ready to embark on this journey play in time and then In less than a week, playoff time, Logan. The big guns, baby. We will be deep in our bag for that. Cannot wait to get in to the most meaningful basketball of the year. So many great teams this year. So many contenders. We're going to have a fun playoff preview again later in this week. But with that, as always, this has been Nerd Sesh. Hope you've enjoyed. You can find some more of our content here on our YouTube channel if you're watching along with us. I just did a video on the Atlanta Hawks and why they are terrifying. Logan has a video coming out soon, so you can always see that there. Uh, If you're just listening to the podcast, then you probably know where to find us, but you can always listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your stuff there. You can follow us on Twitter at nerd underscore sesh and on Instagram at nerd sesh. With that, as always, I have been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. Kevin Hart here. This basketball season, Chase Freedom Unlimited is helping me cash back on everything. Even the sound system that auto-tunes the game. Curry from way downtown. Defense. Will the owner of a red sedan please visit guest services? Bet you've never heard cash back and sound like that. Cash back like a pro with Chase Freedom Unlimited. Chase, make more of what's yours. Restrictions and limitations apply. Cards are issued by JPMorgan Chase Bank and a member FDIC. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. Are you looking to build this year? If so, there is no better time than right now to start planning and to get your spot on the construction schedule. If you need a garage, a stall barn, a storage for vehicles, RV, boat, collectibles, or even a a shop for your farm, hobbies, or car restoration projects, visit mortonbuildings.com and start your construction process. With superior materials, craftsmanship, best-in-class warranty, Morton Buildings are made to last for generations. At Morton, 
The difference is in the details. From their cutting-edge innovations to their craftsmen in the field, they are dedicated to surpassing expectations. Their legacy of excellence spans more than 120 years, and Morton Buildings is 100% employee-owned with more than a quarter million satisfied customers. That means they're the industry leader you can trust. When you choose Morton, you'll experience quality at every step of the building process, starting before the walls even go up. Visit mortonbuildings.com to get started today.